Well, it might be harder to find an example of the modern ethic and philosophy than a guy named Dan Bilzerian. He has uh, been dubbed the king of Instagram. GQ magazine said that he's a 35-year-old Bruce Wayne meets Hugh Hefner for the social media age. He's one of those guys, he's kind of been an actor and dabbled in business, but he's one of those guys that's kind of famous for simply being famous. And as a social media influencer, he lives by the motto, whatever makes me happy. You can usually see his posts, which probably aren't safe for everyone, really not safe for anybody to look at, but when you look at his posts, you will see him usually pictured with a bunch of beautiful women cavorting in exotic places around the globe, whether in an exotic resort or a yacht or a hot tub. Bilzerian likes to flaunt his own physique and exults in a sexually promiscuous anything-goes ethic. And while there have been a few chinks in the armor regarded to his business dealings and legal troubles, for many people, the king of Instagram personifies what it means to live the good life. Rich, beautiful, famous, whatever makes me happy. Now, most of us won't go to the excesses of Bilzerian, although some of us privately maybe wish that we could. And yet, for many, many people, the highest good is whatever makes me happy. We deserve to be happy. And with the death of absolute truth, unrestrained by any sense of right or wrong or moral boundaries, everybody today more or less feels free to pursue their own version of the best life. You hear this, whatever makes me happy, or it's what makes me happy. I've heard that used to justify leaving a marriage, abandoning a family, changing a job. I've used it I uh, heard it used to uh, uh, justify substance abuse or just about anything you can think of. It's our North Star. It's our defining ethic. Do whatever makes you happy, and anything or anyone who seeks to limit your freedom is the enemy. Well, I want you to just question your answers. In subtle and not so subtle ways, that ethic may be the guiding force of your life. But here's the question I want you to ask. Does it really work? Or to ask it another way, does pursuing happiness really make us happy? If your guide for living is whatever makes me happy, my invitation today in just a few minutes is to question your answers And to contrast your answers with the message of Jesus. I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew today. The book of Matthew and chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 begins a series of teaching from Jesus that actually is in a single sermon. This is sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins in Matthew 5 and in the first 12 verses with a series of sayings that all begin with a single word. The word is blessed. It's a word which means happiness. It's a word which means favor. Someone is happy. Someone is 
blessed. And Jesus starts out describing the good life or the blessed life. And he gives, depending on how you count them, eight different qualities of a blessed life. Only what Jesus said is a blessed life seems radically different from what we tend to think will make us happy. Matthew 5, we're going to look at the first 12 verses. And I want to invite you across our campuses to stand. We do that at Calvary just as a way of honoring the authority of God's Word. And so grateful so many of you are watching online and you're listening close as we read from Matthew chapter 5. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They would be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. That is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, show us what the blessed life really looks like, how we can find it, and how we can live it, is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So in this teaching, Jesus lays down a challenge to some of the most commonly held conclusions about life. And while he wasn't addressing a postmodern group of relativists, the conclusions that he does address are manifest throughout time. These conclusions that people have arrived at today are really as old as time itself. We have our ideas about happiness and what will make us happy, but does it? You'll notice a key phrase in this passage, and you'll notice it over and over. You see it, for instance, in verse 21. In this sermon, Jesus starts verse 21 and says, you have heard it said. Then he kind of talks about a common assumption. And then he says in verse 22, but I tell you. Now, you'll notice that over and over again throughout this sermon. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. In fact, you'll notice it again in verse 27 and verse 28. You'll notice it again in verse 33 and verse 34. You'll notice it in verse 38 and 39. You'll notice it again in verse 43 and 44. Throughout this message, Jesus is saying, look, I know you think one thing, but I'm telling you something else. I know you've heard this, but I'm telling you that. And Jesus starts this message with the section we've just read. It's called the Beatitudes, which comes from a Latin word, which means to be blessed. Again, the word just means to be happy. It means to be fortunate. It means to enjoy good favor or circumstances. 
in a sense, what Jesus is saying is, this is the road to real happiness. I know you think this, but I'm telling you that. I know you've heard this, but I'm telling you the exact opposite. Now, the problem is this list of eight qualities looks exactly like the opposite of what we tend to think of as the good life or pursuing happiness. Like, look at this. This is happiness, poor in spirit, grieving, humble, hungry, persecuted. Like, that's the good life. I mean, we might not have a big an aversion to things like merciful and pure and peacemaking, but it still probably wouldn't have topped our list in the pursuit of happiness. Again, Jesus is saying, I know you've heard this, but I'm telling you that. His list could not be more different than the understanding of our culture and our world today, which says, whatever makes me happy. Just last week, I don't know if you heard the message. If not, I hope you'll go back and listen to it online. Because just last week, we kind of began to look at this idea of postmodernism. It's this broad label that is given to modern thought, philosophy, sociology. It, It defines the culture in which we live. If modernism in the late 1800s and early 1900s described one way, then postmodernism described another. Here's the contrast. Modernism, modernism resisted authority. Modernism said, hey, I don't know about that authority in the church, or I don't know about that authority in government. We resist authority. But postmodernism rejects authority. It's not, I'm resisting one authority and replacing it with another. I just reject the idea that anybody is the authority. Postmodernism debates truth. What is the truth? That's modernism, excuse me. Postmodernism denies the truth. There's no such thing as truth. Now, when you understand this, it becomes very enlightening because you understand why we have the huge cultural divide that we do. It'll help you understand that when you come to issues as contentious as abortion, or LGBTQ issues, or marriage issues, or a host of other things, frankly. Why people act as if they are talking about two completely different realities. It's because they're coming at it from two completely different world views. And seldom is there an intelligent conversation where people listen and engage or change anyone's mind. And the only example to changing anyone's mind, typically, I mean, there are always exceptions, but the big exception are young people who grow up in our churches. And they get out of our churches and they go to a university and they're confronted with someone cogently, clearly, cleverly, winsomely explaining the viewpoint on a host of stuff and they're likely to flip. But the reason you have to understand is this. They may have grown up in our churches, but they are still processing information from a post-modern worldview. And as soon as they see somebody drawing the appropriate conclusions, they immediately cave. It isn't so much that they're changing their worldview, 
It's that they're just working out the logical conclusions of the way they have been viewing the world from the beginning. And the church is the thing that looks so odd and out of step. But even in the church, they've learned to process the world through a post-modern mindset. There is no authority. There is no absolute truth. Consider two people describing a beach. And you ask one person to describe a beach, and they're standing on the beautiful beaches of Florida. Now I say humbly and accurately (laughs) that the most beautiful beaches in all the world are right here in the state of Florida. In fact, can we even trust somebody's salvation if they would question such an assumption as that? Honestly, I saw a list the other day, the top 25 beaches in America. Four of them were in our county. And the only problem with the list, it should have been eight or nine, eight or nine at least. So somebody is standing on a beautiful beach right here in Florida. I tell people, you can go to heaven from anywhere. You just won't notice the difference as much if you go from Florida, right? So they're standing on a beautiful, warm beach. And what is the beach? Oh, it's soft sand. The water is calm and clear and warm. It's a beautiful expanse. You ask somebody else to describe a beach, but they're standing on a beach in Oregon. And by the way, I love the coast of Oregon too. But what if they're standing on the coast of Oregon and they say, no, it's not warm, it's cold. No, it's not soft sand beneath the feet. There are huge boulders and rocks. No, the water isn't warm and clear. It's ferocious, and the waves are crashing against the rocks. Now, both are describing exactly what they see. And if they heard the description of the other without knowing where they stand, they would think the other person is being dishonest or crazy. They both describe what they see. The problem is they see different things because they are standing in different places. The postmodern world, as described by one author, is a world in which, quote, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Number two, traditions, religions, receive wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Number three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of human freedom grows. Technology, particularly the internet, will motor this progression toward a utopia. For, he said, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous, and it must not be tolerated. Therefore, social justice isn't about economic or class inequality as much as it is issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, personal autonomy. Number five, he said, human beings are inherently good. Number six, large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And number seven, he said, forms of external authority are to be rejected and personal authenticity is to be lauded. Political historian Mark Lilla noted that the simplicity of these beliefs means that they are held by 
even different groups in Western civilization. These same beliefs are held dear by groups as different as human rights advocates, pornography producers, free market economists, leftists, anarchists, internet hackers, gay marriage campaigners, hippie tech entrepreneurs, and small government conservatives. Behind much of the rhetoric, these views hold sway for much on the left and the right. Most importantly, for millions of people across the West, these beliefs are the dominant framework by which they navigate life. Richard Rorty is a postmodernist writer whose view was described by Richard John Niehaus as this, quote, make it up as you go along. Take ironic delight in the truth that there is no truth. There is no home that answers our homelessness. And if your neighbor or some inner curiosity persists in asking you about the meaning of it all, well, change the subject. Now, before we just try to deconstruct postmodernism, you know what, I think it's important for those of us who reject that as a worldview to try to understand it. And when you understand it, I want to give you three reasons why we need to have empathy for those who see the world that way. And if you see the world that way, I want you to know that I, I can understand why you do. Number one is this. I'm going to give you three reasons why you need to try to understand that view, have empathy with it. Number one, because people have experiences. People have feelings. And for them, their experience, their feelings are real. What is happening to them is not imaginary. What they feel about their desires or their identity is not imaginary. In some cases, they didn't even ask for it. And if you dismiss it, it sounds an awful lot like you're attacking them. It seems completely unfair or unjust. Who are you to tell me who I am or what I can do or how I should find happiness? So the first thing is we need to, we need to acknowledge what people feel and experience is a real thing. Number two, so many people have been burned. They've been burned by institutions. How many of you have been burned by churches, by governments, religious leaders who are hypocritical and say one thing and do another, governments that lie to you? And when you see the flaws and inconsistencies in institutions, you recoil from the idea that those people should have any authority over us. And thirdly, can we not understand that many institutions and churches will inevitably claim absolute authority for things that aren't absolutely true? They tend to mix preference and tradition with other values that may be transcendently true, and it leaves people confused and willing to reject the whole approach. I mean, how many of you were told things when you were young or even told things in churches? This is the way it is. And later on you went, wait a second. Is that somebody's opinion or is that absolute truth? Is that somebody's preference or can I be sure about that? And the more you get burned, the more skeptical you are about trusting anyone but yourself. And I can understand it. But does that mean that trusting yourself will work? All of us, honestly have had some of those same experiences where we once accepted things that we later questioned but the question still remains and we don't want to simply change the subject because there isn't an easy answer the question remains is the pursuit of my own happiness the highest good and does the pursuit of 
happiness produce the greatest possible happiness? Is it working? Andrew Walker, an ethicist, commenting on the secular age, tweeted a few days ago, quote, marriage is in decline, suicide is at historic highs, a loneliness epidemic surges, addiction rages, civil society is decaying, but hey, at least we have iPads. It really doesn't seem to be working. If this pursuit of happiness were working, why is there more mental illness, more emotional distress, more depression, more societal decay, more hatred, more racism, more racial tension, and more violence? People don't seem happier. Statistics seem to bear that out. What about measuring your own happiness? Does pursuing happiness at any cost actually work? Actually, we've known it for a long time. The hedonists were a Greek school of philosophy, Greek philosophers who understood that the meaning of life was the pursuit of pleasure. Whatever brought pleasure, that is the meaning of life. The problem is, here's what you learn. It doesn't work. Because some of the things that bring the most intense pleasure can also bring the most intense and long-lasting pain. So some of the hedonists began to recognize, well, that doesn't really work. And so they developed a school of philosophy known as Epicureanism. The Epicureans taught, yes, pleasure is the highest pursuit of life, but you must practice moderation because you begin to judge pleasure at that which lasts the longest, not which that which is the shortest and most intense, but the pleasure that lasts the longest. And so they learned for that, you have to practice moderation. But even that still leaves holes. We've learned these things for a long time. The things that bring the most pleasure don't actually bring the most pleasure. You can pursue an affair, but oftentimes the downside of that is extraordinary pain for many years. The pleasure brings pain. You can explore addictions, drugs, and alcohol, but what brings, and every addict has learned this, intense, immediate pleasure can bring even more intense and lasting pain. And even if you learn to practice moderation, there are still questions about the problem of pain in life and the reality of tragedy. What about those things? How do you answer those? So where does happiness really come from? In his book, Just As I Am, which was an autobiography, Billy Graham tells a story at the end, and I've shared this story before. I I love this story. Some will remember, it may be harder for younger people, maybe younger than me to realize, Billy Graham was at one point the most famous man on the planet. He was almost routinely, in poll after poll, named one of the most admired men on the planet. Hard to imagine this day that a Christian evangelist A Baptist preacher would rank that high, but Billy Graham universally did. And he describes about a time when he was coming back to America and he stopped for a few days on a Caribbean island. His wife, Ruth, and he were invited to visit with what he described as one of the wealthiest men in the world. Graham's words now. He asked us to lunch in his lavish home. He was 75, and throughout the meal, he seemed close to tears. 
Billy said, he said, I'm the most miserable man in the world. Out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere I want. I have my private plane, my helicopters. I have everything I want to make me happy, and yet I am miserable. We talked to him, Billy said, had prayer with him, and tried to point him to the hope of Christ, and then left. Before leaving, however, we met with another man who was a pastor of a local church. He was an Englishman. And Graham writes, he too was 75 years of age. He was actually a widower, and he spent most of his free time taking care of his two invalid sisters. Graham said he reminded me of a cricket, always jumping up and down, full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and others. And then he said these words before he left, I don't have two pounds to my name, but I'm the happiest man on this island. Graham said, as we left, I looked at Ruth and said, who do you think is the richer man? And we both knew the answer. See, what does Jesus have to say about real happiness? Does it come from pursuing whatever makes me happy? First of all, I want you to know Jesus does want you to be happy. In fact, he created you for happiness. I like what John Piper says, God is the ultimate hedonist. He created pleasure and created us for it. In fact, look at verse 12. Be glad and rejoice. Yes, Jesus created us to know joy and know happiness. He created us and wants us to be blessed. But look at what he says in these verses. Is the road to experience true blessing. Does it come from pursuing whatever makes me happy? Well, look at this list. Quite the difference. He gives eight beatitudes, eight qualities that Jesus describes. And the first four have to do with our internal qualities. And I think if you look at it, it has to do with what we think about ourselves in view of the reality of God. That is how we look at ourselves in light of God, how we relate to God, really. And the second four qualities deal with how we relate to other people. If you were to say, what makes a person truly happy? What is the secret to a blessed life? I think it's two things. Number one, love God. Love God. Learn to love God. More than yourself, more than things, more than pleasures. It's not what makes you happy. Learn to love God. See, look at the first four qualities that Jesus describes there. When you look at the four qualities, they might strike us as strange. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the hungry. I know that doesn't sound like the good life, but look closely and you will see the attributes that remind us. First of all, we need to be honest. We need to get honest about ourselves in light of God. When you look at the first three Beatitudes... To be poor in spirit is to recognize our need. It is, to, it is the opposite of being proud and cocky. It is the opposite of thinking I have it all together. It is to recognize that I am poor. I am lacking. I need God's help. It's the opposite of I've got it all together. God, I'm poor in spirit. I need your help. To mourn or grieve means to suffer loss and experience pain. Far from pain being the reality that destroys our happiness, our pain can actually bring us to a place where we are dependent upon God. 
We are to grieve the condition of our soul. We are to grieve over our desperate need for God. When we recognize our sin, it should grieve us. It should break our heart. Then we are closer in that moment to finding the comfort that only God can give. You want real comfort? Learn to grieve. To be humble is to admit our condition before God. It's the opposite of pride and arrogance. See, these three things, poor in spirit, mourning, grieving, they remind us we've got to get honest in our relationship with God. We've got to get honest about our life and our own brokenness. Not only do we need to get honest, friend, we need to get help. When you get honest, then you, need, you realize you do need help. And that's where that fourth beatitude comes in. Blessed are those who hunger. Do you like to be hungry? <laughs> no, we like to be full. And yet Jesus said, blessed are those who have a hunger for what? For money? For pleasure? For applause? No, blessed are those who hunger for the righteousness of God. That's the character of God, the rightness of God. Jesus said, show me somebody who's hungry for God, hungry for the character of God, hungry to know God. He said, that's the person who would be filled. Can I tell you something? The person who hungers after possessions will never get full. The person who hungers after pleasures will never have enough. The person who hungers for applause will always want more. But the person who hungers for the character of God, they will be full. See, the first secret to happiness isn't found in pursuing whatever makes you happy. It's found in pursuing God, loving God. And the second three, why the second three speak about loving others. We love God. Secondly, we love others. Look at those next four. Be merciful. Be merciful means to demonstrate love and compassion in a way to others that is practical. To be pure in heart means to be genuine, a sincere person who responds to others without selfish or ulterior motives rather than somebody who uses others, who truly can love others. To be a peacemaker means we seek to resolve conflict, not create it. We don't always have to have our own way. In each of these, we see a person who loves and cares for others above themselves, and who demonstrates that love in their relationships. In the last quality, Jesus deals with how we respond to opposition and persecution. Even when we suffer for doing good, it is worth it because the ultimate payoff is eternal. This isn't weakness. Often the hardest thing we can do is to endure suffering without striking back without becoming full of anger or hatred. But here Jesus said, when we suffer for doing good, we can rejoice, and here's why. Because we know that great is our reward in heaven. We can live with others in light of eternity. That is, we live knowing that God is watching and one day God will make it right. In this sense, our payoff is eternal. Our reward in heaven is great. Now, Jesus is not saying that we will not know great joy and happiness now. But he is saying that the key to the truly blessed life is to always live with eternity in mind. 
You may suffer some temporary, momentary pain today, but in light of eternity, it is bearable. Life is not always easy. There will be pain. There will be suffering. And this is true for every person. But if you're only, listen, if you're only looking for the payoff now, you may experience it some. But here's what you better know. It's temporary and short-lived. That is why people who live for the here and now often end up with great sadness and emptiness and despair. Hemingway took his own life. And I tell you this, I wouldn't trade a future built by God for Dan Bilzerian's future for any amount of money or any experience he has. Yes, we can know happiness now. But the great payoff is eternal. The real payoff is knowing that we can rejoice today in light of the greater joy that is coming tomorrow. The problem with living by the ethic of whatever makes me happy is that you will end up living a very selfish life and in the end, it will not lead to great happiness. Jesus invites us to question our answers. You've heard it said, but I tell you. Instead of doing whatever makes us happy, he calls us to see that our greatest need is for God. And he calls us to seek God's help. He calls us to manifest God's character in our relationship with others. He says that it is in loving God and in loving others that we find the true road to happiness. Look, if you are convinced that living for whatever makes me happy is the real way to happiness, I want you to question your answers. Jesus offers a different way. Jesus offers a better way. Jesus offers the way that leads to the blessed life. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. Jesus says, follow me, and I will give you life. Let's pray together. As every head's bowed, I wonder if you're here watching online, watching at one of our campuses. You know what? Your life may be in a place of confusion and bewilderment right now. And you're going, why? I just want you to question your answers. Because if you've been living by an ethic, well, whatever makes me happy... Well, I'm doing this because it makes me happy. I'm just going to trust my gut. <laughs> I want to tell you, that's the quickest way to be on a path toward hell. And if you're wondering why it doesn't work, it's because it doesn't work. <laughs> Jesus said, I know you've heard it, but I want to give you a different way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who are hungry for me. They will be full. I wonder if you're here and you're listening to this message, you've been going in one direction if you'd like to turn around and go in another. Because you can. The Bible calls it repentance. It means to change your mind and change your way. If you're here and you would admit that you've sinned, that's poor in spirit, see? If you'd grieve over that sin, that's, that's to mourn. If you're humble enough to say, God, I need you, 
and you would hunger for God, here's, here's the problem, you would be full. Confess your sin. He will forgive you. So maybe right where you are today, or watching online, you're there at Seminole, you're there at Eastlake, right now, maybe your prayer would sound something like this. You could just make it your prayer. Use these words. Father in heaven, I know I need you. I admit that I'm broken. I admit that I don't have it all figured out. In fact, I feel lost today. I feel like I'm heading in the wrong direction. Would you help me? Would you reach down and save me today? I confess my sins. Father, I ask you to forgive me. And I put my trust in Jesus, believing that he is the Lord who died on the cross in my place, who was buried and raised again. Today I ask you, Father, through the work of Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. Would you fill me with your presence, your love and your forgiveness, so that I might know the blessed life that comes from you Please come into my heart. If you prayed that prayer in a moment, one of our campus pastors will tell you exactly what you need to do next. I want to encourage you to take that next step of letting someone know that you've made that decision for Christ. We want to help you in your next step. If you're online, we want you to take that step of letting someone know what you've done. If you're a believer, you know what? Sometimes we get off the path. We begin to think that in this world and in the things of this world, rye, real happiness. But we know better. They're found in following Jesus. Will you trust him again? Will you trust him? Oh, living God. Thank you that you love us. And you want us to know joy. You want to pour blessing upon us beyond our capacity to even comprehend or receive it. Thank you for loving us. But oh, Father, we're lost. We go astray. We believe the lies of the world. We believe that happiness is found in the things we can touch and hold and feel and see. God, expose the lies for what they are. That God, we can put our trust in you. We can love you. We can love others. We can know the blessed life that only Jesus brings. Help us to trust you and follow you. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.